welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. You know me, I'm your host, Sarah Dong. I am a combined adult and pediatric infectious disease fellow currently living in Boston. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. Like usual, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Before we start, I have a quick announcement. I definitely realize I will be giving a little bit away by sharing this news here in the beginning, so I hope you don't mind too much. There is a new clinical practice guideline on the diagnosis and management of acute hematogenous osteomyelitis in pediatrics from the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society, or PIDS, and the Infectious Disease Society of America, IDSA, that should be coming out very soon. And to accompany this, PIDS is going to be releasing a brief podcast to discuss the guidelines of some of the authors, which I can't wait for you to hear. Uh, today, I have an interesting case for you, and I hope that you will use both this febrile episode with the upcoming PIDS podcast to help get you thinking about questions surrounding pediatric osteo and the new guidelines. Hopefully, you'll get some synergy and a nice bit of space learning. And of course, like always, I will have infographics for both this episode and the PIDS guidelines, so stay tuned for that. Without further ado, I would like to introduce our guest for this episode, Dr. Yuri Bogunievich. Yuri is an assistant professor of pediatrics in the section of pediatric infectious diseases at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He attended medical school at the University of Colorado before moving to Houston, Texas to complete his pediatric residency and pediatric ID fellowship at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. He is a transplant ID physician at Children's Hospital Colorado and has a special clinical interest in infections of the immunocompromised host. Welcome to the show, Yuri. How are you doing? Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Awesome. Um, so as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, we like to kick off and ask you to share a little piece of culture or something that you enjoy that brings you happiness. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about this and, you know, what do I like to do? And unfortunately, the pandemic's kind of put a damper on a lot of things. I think yeah. uh, before that, I was a pretty big foodie. You know, I did my fellowship in Houston, which is a great international food city. Um, I love exploring new restaurants, new foods, um, been able to do much less of that during the pandemic and sort of eat out the same places. But uh, one thing that I have uh, been enjoying and kind of um, exercising a little bit of my uh, creative skill set and my you know culinary interests is um, making cocktails and nice. sort of cocktail chemistry. And I think there's, you know, um, a lot of science behind um, actually making cocktails. Um, there's a really cool book called Liquid Intelligence by Dave Arnold. Um, and it's, it's basically, it's more like a chemistry book than a, than a cookbook, really. Um, and it tells you a lot about the science behind, um, you know, making drinks. And you're, you're sort of doing many um, chemistry experiments, but uh, <laughs> you get to imbibe the, the results, which is fun, too. So highly yeah, recommend so cool. it. Yeah, I love all of the um, sort of like science and cooking themed, like there's a lot of like blogs and books and things like that. I love all of those. Anytime I see one, I immediately add it. <laughs> I'm not a good baker, so this was sort of my, <laughs> my outlet to, to sort of exercise uh, my creative juices. Yeah. 
Um, all right. And so today our console question is about a 14 month old with chest swelling. And so the team wants some help trying to figure out what's going on because they're not really sure. Um, so our 14 month old girl comes in with some swelling on her chest that her mom noticed recently. And mom has picked up on the fact that it must be pretty painful because the patient seems really irritated when the area is touched. Um, There's been no fever, no overlying redness or skin changes at that spot. And it hasn't really changed in size and it hasn't drained. Mom just kind of noticed it was there. And then slowly over time, she's noticed how it's irritating her daughter. There's also been no other sort of systemic symptoms. So nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. And there has been no sort of trauma at the area that they remember. There have been no bug bites that they know of. They're like, we haven't gone anywhere. No one else in the family has anything like this, no rash. Um, And so they went and saw their pediatrician who ordered an ultrasound, which was scheduled for, I think, two or three weeks later. But mom, over the next like couple days, felt like the area on the middle of the chest was enlarging. And so she said, I really don't didn't feel comfortable waiting for the ultrasound and brought her to the emergency room. And so for a little past medical history, this girl is otherwise healthy. She's developmentally appropriate, um, up to date on her vaccinations, was a full term kiddo, and both parents are healthy. And so on exam, I, I didn't quite describe the lesion yet, but it's it's about four centimeters by four centimeters. And it's the subcutaneous swelling on her anterior chest wall. So like right over her sternum. And it almost feels like fixed to the sternum. There's no erythema or fluctuance or drainage. It does not seem to be tracking from the areas around the swelling. And she does start crying when you are palpating the mass. Otherwise, for the rest of her exam, she is well appearing. She's smiling. She's interactive. And I didn't mention, but her vitals were normal and she doesn't have a fever. So it's kind of an odd presentation. I thought I'd stop here and see what you're thinking about and maybe if you have other questions. But then I think the big the big ask is how do we evaluate this? What do you think is a good next step? Yeah, this is a an unusual presentation. I'd say not something we encounter too frequently, you know, particularly given the location sort of being over the sternum is pretty odd. Um, you know, I think as far as getting at uh, possible um, etiology and, and differential, I might have a couple um, follow-up questions. You know, uh, you mentioned she hasn't really had systemic symptoms uh, that the mom's aware of, but um, has she been growing normally? Has there been any concerns about, you know, weight loss? Um, something that would indicate maybe a more chronic uh, process or uh, potentially something more nefarious. Um, you know, along those same lines, has she had any, uh, uh, you know, B symptoms, things like night sweats, uh, fatigue, uh, any associated lymphadenopathy, uh, which may point to, again, a more systemic illness or potentially something like uh, a malignancy. So I think just based on, you know, having a chest wall mass, my differential would sort of include common things and some more unusual things and then you know being infectious diseases of course considering an infectious differential as well as a non-infectious differential 
you know, from a, uh, I would, I would say, you know, more likely, you know, just based on the appearance, the fact that she's otherwise been doing well, uh, that there really hasn't been any, you know, fevers or anything like that. Infection might be a little bit lower on my list. I might be, I might be thinking more about, you know, some chest wall masses, things like benign tumors, um, potentially uh, congenital, you know, dermoid cysts or something like a hemangioma. You would think that'd be a little bit unusual that sort of be popping up now and that they wouldn't have noticed this you know, earlier, um, if she had a little cyst, maybe it was, it was small before. Now, you know, it's possible it could be uh, super infected as well. And maybe that's causing some issues. Of course, I think you do have to think about malignant processes uh, as well. So sarcomas, things like uh, Ewing's potentially. I'm not an oncologist, so, you know, I may not be able to tell you much more to, to differentiate those, but certainly there's a list of, of different bony tumors. Uh, you know, other ones might include things like Langerhans, cell histiocytosis. You know, there's there's potentially more concerning di- diagnoses too. I think the fact that she hasn't had systemic symptoms, and as long as she is, you know, thriving and growing well, and, and the fact that this is seems to be fairly acute would probably make those things a little bit less likely. Um, and then I think that again, along the non-infectious uh, differential, you know, you do worry about trauma. Still, the family doesn't uh, endorse any trauma. There's no like obvious signs of a hematoma or anything like that. But if this was something uh, deeper, you know, or if there was a concern for like a sternal fracture or something like that, that could obviously lead to to swelling and pain. Um, You know, hopefully the family would have witnessed something in a 14-month-old. She's probably not running around causing, you know, severe impact. But um, there, it could also, you know, you could also uh, think about um, more innocuous type of trauma and something, uh, you know, foreign body potentially penetrating the area and causing local inflammation, you know, something like a, a little splinter, um, you know, and sometimes infections can be associated with that, things like nocardia or some, some fungi that... Uh, can cause uh, more chronic and, and more indolent processes. So we think it'd be a little bit more subacute or chronic presentation. Um, and then the other thing I keep in mind, because I have seen a, a patient like this who did have a chest wall mass, uh, but you know, is this actually something coming from the outside or from the inside uh, going outwards rather than the uh, outside in. Um, so something like actinomyces causing an empyema necessitans uh, can commonly present as a chest wall mass in kids. And then it's only when you look uh, with imaging that you see a large collection in the, uh, in the lungs that's sort of working its way out. Uh, but typically those kids, you know, you would see other evidence of chronic inflammation, you know, weight loss, potentially fever. So they're not usually thriving in, in that setting. Um, and then, you know, more commonly from an infectious standpoint, you know, is this just a little, uh, is this just a local abscess? Um, you know, she hasn't had fevers. There's no other signs of inflammation or fluctuance. So that seems maybe a little bit less likely. Um, and again, you know, could just be a primary abscess or it could be secondarily infecting some sort of uh, cystic lesion that's already been there. And then as far as uh, evaluation, you know, I I do think this does warrant um, further imaging and a little bit more workup, especially now that it's it's growing and given the differential, you know, potentially includes both, you know, infectious processes and non-infectious etiologies, including, you know, trauma and potentially malignancy. 
uh, I do think you need, you know, more detailed imaging. It might be reasonable to start with an ultrasound and just see what you're dealing with, if there is a fluid collection that can be easily sampled. Um, but, you know, you may need more, uh, more advanced imaging like a CT to really be able to tell if there's any sort of deeper bony involvement. If we're worried that maybe this is an infectious process, abscess, or um, potentially even a sternal osteomyelitis, which would be a little bit unusual, um, you know, getting blood cultures, getting inflammatory markers, a CBC would be potentially helpful both from an infection and a tumor standpoint, and then other markers of cell turnover, things like LDH, uric acid, uh, all might be reasonable, I think, given the differential. You're right. I didn't mention she is around the 40th percentile for height and weight um, and has been growing appropriately. And then it sounds like for the other, you know, fatigue and night sweats or other symptoms that parents may have noticed, they hadn't picked up on anything so far. Um, And so we did do some of those initial basic labs that you mentioned. So our chemistry is normal. On the CBC, there is a leukocytosis of 20,000. And the platelets are 500. Hemoglobin and hematocrit are normal. And then on the differential, it was about 25% neutrophils, 71% lymphs. We did get an LDH, which was elevated around 600. And the uric acid was 2.8. And then for inflammatory markers, her ESR was 56. So it was elevated. And then her CRP was 1.5 which is um, milligrams per deciliter. I realize a lot of people use different units for (laughs) CRP. So the normal um, would be less than 1.2. So the CRP was a little bit elevated. We go ahead and get a chest ultrasound uh, while she's in the ED. And it shows a subcutaneous, about three centimeter hypoechoic lesion um, with some slightly more echogenic extension into deeper tissues at the level of the sternum to the depth of about two to three centimeters. And so it sounds like the tech had a hard time assessing color Doppler for internal vascularity because it was very painful for the patient, Um, but they couldn't identify any definitive drainable fluid collection. And then the surrounding subcutaneous tissues were echogenic and sort of compatible with some inflammatory changes. And so here, because we have this chest wall mass that seems to be extending into the sternum, but no obvious mobile fluid, the recommendation was getting an x-ray or a CT to assess the sternum and look for bony destruction. And so around this time, a chest x-ray is ordered as a first step, and the pediatric surgery team is called at the same time so that we can all sort of look at this. And the chest x-ray does show some sternal bone destruction along with the soft tissue swelling that we know about. The problem is it's hard for the radiologist to know if this is osteomyelitis with overlying abscess. Could this be Langerhans still? Could it still be a soft tissue tumor? Um, Could it still be metastases? And so the surgical team has reviewed the ultrasound and the chest x-ray, and everyone feels at this point we need a CT to get a better look, and that if we needed a surgery team involved, it probably needs to be the cardiothoracic team based on the invasion into the sternum. And so our next step is we get our CT chest. And so this soft tissue mass is identified It is rim-enhancing and described as compatible with a complex fluid collection. So it actually is sort of 
bilobed and has a segment that extends between the margins of the first and second sternal segments and does show evidence of bony erosion. So basically this collection is going a little bit like half or a centimeter past deep into the sternum. And so at this point, the thought is maybe this is a dermoid, epidermoid cyst that's been super infected. Maybe this is abscess and osteomyelitis. Um, but fortunately, the based on the appearance and the fact that it's room enhancing, a lot of the sort of benign soft tissue tumors or malignancies have fallen down the list, hopefully. And so here we are, we have this imaging that looks concerning for infection, even though it's a little hard to tell what if there was an underlying uh, anatomic abnormality to drive this. And so I think there's sort of two big questions that we always come to when you get to this point. One is, what do we think about sampling or a procedure? And, and two, do we start antibiotics now? Do we have the luxury of waiting if we know the procedure's planned? You know, how long do you wait? And so I think it's a lot of questions, but we end up thinking about all of them at the same time. So I thought I'd see how you would approach it for this kid, for example, acknowledging that it, it would be different depending on how everyone looks when they come into the, you know, the hospital or the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do think there uh, is a major role for sampling and doing a procedure to get a piece of tissue in this case. Um, you know, if there is concern about osteomyelitis, the recommendation is usually to get um, some sort of tissue sample to guide uh, your microbiological, to make a microbiologic diagnosis and really help guide your therapy. It allows you to, uh, one, narrow your, um, your antibiotic therapy. So hopefully you're choosing, a, you know, an agent that's going to have a, a, a more favorable side effect profile, hopefully an oral alternative. Um, and something that ultimately is going to be better tolerated than some of the more, more broad spectrum agents. And it helps you sort of gauge how long of a therapy course you think you're going to need. If it's a more concerning or virulent pathogen, you know you may be on the longer end of therapy uh, versus something that's maybe uh, a little bit um, you know, um, less virulent, you'll, you'll probably be doing a shorter course. Um, so I think it's helpful in guiding that. I think in this case, you know, particularly it's going to be important because she's not sort of the classic uh, acute hematogenous osteomyelitis. So your differential um, has to be a little bit broader uh, than the typical organisms we think about. And I think, you know, we haven't completely ruled out other uh, non-infectious etiologies so um, sampling is going to be important for histopathology to really help us uh, differentiate, you know, is this tumor, is this infection, um, you know, could this be a more indolent uh, organism if this is infection that you know we may not culture easily or it may take a long time to grow on culture and maybe our only clue is going to be uh, staining that is done on, on histopath. So I think it's going to be really important to get a, a sample in this case. As far as the, the question of, of starting antibiotics and, and when to start that, you know, I think it, it really depends. Um, you know, generally, I would say, or you know, what I've been taught is that for indolent uh, infections or indolent processes, the uh, the urgency of starting antibiotics is a little bit less than if the patient comes in uh, clearly sick or, or septic. So if she was really ill-appearing, um, you know, uh, highly febrile, unstable vital signs, 
Uh, certainly, it's never wrong to start empiric antibiotics in a kid you uh, may be worried is, is septic. And um, there's always this concern about, you know, if you do start antibiotics, is that going to uh, reduce your, uh, your yield of, of your microbiologic studies? And I th- I think for the you know the most part and based on the data that's out there is that really you know antibiotics for 24 to 48 hours before a procedure typically don't have a huge impact on the microbiologic yield and you can still typically recover uh, the typical organisms we're worried about you know things like staph aureus you know usually grow pretty easily even with uh, some antibiotic pretreatment I, that being said, if she's otherwise looking well, you're able to observe her in the hospital and you know that you're going to have a procedure in the next, you know, 24, 48 hours, it may be totally reasonable to hold off and, you know, it may give you a slightly better yield on on your, uh, on your culture. So I think it, it kind of just depends what she's looking like. But um, in this case, I, I don't think I would have a problem uh, waiting uh, to start antibiotics if we were going to go to the OR within the next uh, day or so. Yeah, it's it's it helps make the decision because she hasn't had a fever and the fact that she otherwise has looked pretty well. Um, and so I am like most of the episodes will sort of speed along her case, but this patient is actually taken to the operating room um, and has an uncomplicated procedure um, where they basically removed this area, soft tissue mass, or I should say resect, um, and did some sternal debridement. What was thought to sort of be the wall of the mass was sent for histology, which the rapid histology in the OR was benign, but then it was sent for formal histopath, which we'll get to later. Um, and because part of the area penetrated the sternum, the sternum was cut and debrided. And at the end of the surgery, a Penrose drain was placed temporarily. And so at the time, the thought was this looks like probably an infected cyst of some kind because it seemed to have a little bit of a wall around it. It has some sternal involvement. Now it's removed and been debrided. The patient was around this time put on clindamycin for sort of empiric osteomyelitis treatment, thinking about staph and group A strep as possible organisms. Blood cultures were collected before antibiotics. And, you know, she did well. She was afebrile, was feeling better. And then the pathology from the mass returned and showed that the wall of the chest mass uh, was organizing fibrinopurulent exudate consistent with abscess. There was no evidence of malignancy or sort of changes that they thought would be consistent with the cyst. And they actually felt like all of the path that was sent was consistent with sort of acute inflammation and abscess. And so based on this pathology, the final sort of working diagnosis of this chest wall mass was abscess with sternal osteomyelitis. And so for cultures, the OR uh, sample gram stain did not show organisms. It did have PMNs. The cultures were negative. And so a um, she was continued on clindamycin. A universal PCR was sent out that we'll get back in a little bit. Um, But I thought I'd stop here and let us talk a little bit about, you know, now we're calling this osteomyelitis. She obviously didn't have a typical presentation for an acute hematogenous osteo, but I thought we could talk more broadly about the organisms we really would be thinking about here 
and where what locations you would normally see osteo in children because this is obviously an unusual <laughs> spot um but i think it's a good opportunity as for talk about what would be more of sort of the typical experience yeah it's a interesting case and the presentation just kind of continues to get a little bit uh weirder but um you know, anytime you have acute uh, hematogenous osteomyelitis, the you know the epidemiology really suggests that staph, staph, staph aureus should really be number one, two, and three on the on the differential. So it's by far the most common cause of acute hematogenous osteomyelitis. She's a little bit unusual because she didn't have a lot of features of systemic illness and, you know, her inflammatory markers, her um, elevated platelets, her high ESR below CRP sort of suggest that maybe this was a more subacute or maybe a little bit more indolent uh, process, um, even though, you know, the pathology suggests that maybe this is uh, more consistent with an acute infection. Um, so it, it'd be a little bit unusual for staph aureus. Um, I would expect her to have sort of more evidence of, of inflammation or at least a, a little bit of more of an inflammatory response. Uh, the location is also pretty unusual for staph aureus. Typically, we see um, osteomyelitis uh, in kids in long bones or tubular bones, things like the femur, the, the tibia, um, sometimes the, the humerus occasionally. Um, so having it in non-tubular bones like the, the uh, sternum or, or vertebra is much more unusual and kind of has its own uh, differential. Um, you know, like you pointed out earlier, there are other uh, bacteria, obviously, that can cause osteomyelitis. So, you know, group A strep, as you mentioned, so other skin bacteria can occasionally uh, do that. We don't see that as often. Um, and clindamycin should be good coverage for that. Um, you know, her vaccination status is important. Um, prior to HIV vaccine, uh, you know, being universally uh, recommended in children. Um, HIV used to be, uh, Haemophilus influenza type B used to be a pretty common cause, more of septic arthritis in, in kids. So if there was a, a low uh, community coverage uh, with Haemophilus influenza B vaccine and, and she wasn't vaccinated, that still might be something to be concerned about. Strep pneumo, you know, is occasionally described as a cause of osteomyelitis, but but pretty rare. You know, the other pathogen you might think of, given her um, her age, is uh, Kingella kingae, which is. A, a bit harder to diagnose with our typical culture. So typically you need, uh, it's recommended to inoculate either the synovial fluid, uh, if you have a septic arthritis or a bone aspirate in a blood culture bottle to improve your yield, or in the case of uh, this patient, like you guys did, sending a universal PCR or a, a special PCR test for Kingella can be helpful. Um, but that is an organism to consider uh, and often will present more indolently than staph aureus, uh, may not have as much uh, inflammation associated with it. And particularly in this young uh, sort of toddler age group, uh, it's a pathogen to consider. And so our final cultures did finalize as negative, but her universal PCR came back with Kingella kingae. Um, and so I, you already mentioned a couple pearls about Kingella, but I, I would love to hear what you think are sort of the high yield points for Kingella for the, you know, for ID fellows or residents that are thinking about this. Because the one thing I did, even though it was an unusual case, is that she's kind of the right age range. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, absolutely. I think, you know, that's probably the, the biggest clue. Um, it's a really interesting organism. I thought, you know, before I um, say some clinical points about King Gala, since it was recently uh, International Women's Day, I wanted to give a shout out to uh, the namesake of King Gala Kinga, which is Elizabeth O'King. So she was a microbiologist who really uh, started her career uh, at the predecessor of the CDC, which was the U.S. Uh, Communicable Disease Center. Um, and she's got two bacteria named after her, so both Kingella kingae and then uh, Elizabeth kingia, the, the genus, is named after her because she did a lot of work on uh, what at the time she named Flavobacterium, which is the cause of uh, neonatal meningitis, uh, gram-negative causing neonatal meningitis. So pretty cool uh, pioneer in microbiology and uh, the namesake what? of Kingella. So. Um, but you know it, it's a it's an interesting gram-negative organism. It really has this unique uh, ecologic niche uh, where it colonizes the posterior oropharynx, and it's very specific to the to the back of the oropharynx for whatever reason. And, and these young children, you know, like you pointed out, it's typically this uh, toddler age group. You know, we sort of think six to to three years is sort of the the most high risk. Um, group for Kingella uh, invasive uh, bone and joint infections. And typically, you know, it's, I've seen it cause more septic arthritis than true osteomyelitis, but definitely uh, can cause osteomyelitis. And, and again, still more commonly in, in long bones, uh, like the femur or hip, but um, there are some uh, studies, you know, describing it causing uh, sternal osteomyelitis or osteomyelitis of more small joints too. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned before, it, it tends to be a little bit more uh, indolent, not quite as inflammatory as Staph aureus. You know, there are some uh, reports that um, the CRP is often uh, normal or not very elevated in these patients and that they don't make as robust an inflammatory response. Um, I think it's unusual that there, there does seem to be some geographic variation and uh, we don't tend to see it a lot, uh, you know, at our institution, but, you know, in some places uh, like France and Switzerland, it's, it's one of the most commonly uh, described pathogens in bone and joint infections in young children uh, for whatever reason. Um, and, there do, and in those countries, there does seem to be some seasonal variation. And the thought is that it may coincide with things like Coxsackie infection or certain respiratory viruses. And that, that can also sometimes be a clue to Kingella, kids who have uh, oral ulcers or preceding respiratory infection uh, and then come in with a bone and joint infection, Kingella uh, should be on the differential. And, you know, like I think this case illustrates, diagnosis can be uh, tricky because it doesn't readily grow on blood cultures. If you have a patient where you're getting bone or synovial fluid, the recommendation is to to uh, inoculate that sample into a blood culture bottle because it's thought that there's probably some inhibitory factors in the pus that prevent its growth and that you can sort of dilute that out uh, with the blood culture. Um, but then also sending it for, for PCR will definitely improve your yield. And I think if you, you know, sort of do that in a select population, you know, that has the right epidemiologic risk factors like young toddlers, then, then that will definitely improve your chances of getting the, the right diagnosis. And then as far as treatment, you know, even though we typically will use agents like uh, clindamycin for empiric 
therapy for osteomyelitis, trying to uh, target staph. Uh, Kingel is often resistant to clindamycin. It's intrinsically resistant to vancomycin. Um, so typically, you know, the recommendation is to use either uh, a penicillin or a cephalosporin. Um, some isolates can have a beta-lactamase, um, in which case, you know, uh, amoxicillin clavulanate may be appropriate. Um, oftentimes, we'll treat them with uh, um, cephalexin, which is going to be good coverage for both Kingella and MSSA, uh, actually. So, um, you know, if, if there's a case, which, which we have had some, where you don't, uh, you don't get a confirmed diagnosis of Kingella, but you're highly suspicious, uh, but you're not totally sure that staph isn't on the differential, you know, cephalexin may be a good choice because it'll cover uh, both of those bases. And something I did not realize before, but um, I realized when I was reading is that there have been uh, clusters of Kingella infections from kids in daycares, which is so fascinating because it's it's such a weird type of thing to think of as coming from like a, um, you know, child to child <laughs> type transition. But it's a also, I think, a really interesting thing. Obviously, we don't see a lot, but I thought it was was really cool. Yeah, it is pretty well described, these outbreaks in the daycare setting. Yeah. And, you know, if you swap most of those children's posterior, you know, specifically swap the, the back of their oropharynx, not the nasopharynx, uh, you will detect it. Um, and they've done studies in the past where um, they looked at um, uh, adults who had young children at home compared to adults who did not and found that actually in those adults who had young children, they were more likely to also carry mm-hmm. King Gal, although typically they did not, you know, develop uh, invasive infections from it. So, um, so yeah, it, it has this very unusual and specific sort of uh, niche in these in this toddler age group. So cool. Okay, and so now your patient, they she feels great. Mom's like, can we get out of here? Um, walk us through the switch to oral because I know they're probably. Um, you know, there's not, I know, I know there's not a perfect answer for that. Um, and then sort of once this patient is, let's say they're a couple weeks into therapy, is there anything that you do to sort of assess or monitor their response? Any other tips you have for sort of this transition out of the hospital back into their normal lives? I think in general for uh, acute hematogenous osteomyelitis, the, the trend nationally, and I think what the, the, uh, pediatric ID society guidelines really support is early transition to oral therapy as opposed to um, long-term outpatient parenteral therapy. Um, it's overall much safer. It isn't associated with worse uh, rates of relapse of infection, is much better tolerated, and has less risks of complications from having a, a parenteral line. So I, I think for the most part, you know, we're typically in favor of uh, switching to oral therapy um, and, and pretty early on. So, you know, as far as assessing in the hospital her response to treatment and, and at what point you would switch to oral therapy, you know, generally our criteria, you know, at, at our institution, I think it's similar at, at a lot of other places is, you know, we want to see evidence of clinical improvement. So if this was a long bone osteo, you know, typically you want to see that they're feeling much better using that limb, maybe even bearing weight. For sternal osteo in a 14-month-old, that may be much harder to assess, but you know, if she was irritable before, hopefully that's improving. If she was febrile, we typically like to see that they're at least a febrile for 24 hours as part of that clinical response. Um, 
Typically, it's, it's recommended that for uh, acute osteomyelitis, checking inflammatory markers and sort of using that as uh, another marker of improvement. Um, so if the CRP was elevated, we'd like to see that there's a downtrend at our institution. We don't have a specific cutoff to say, you know, now you're ready to, to go home now that your CRP is below uh, whatever level. But we do like to see that there's a consistent uh, downtrend and improvement in the CRP. Um, suggesting that uh, there is some improvement in in, uh, in the inflammatory response. Um, you know, with her, it's a little bit trickier because her CRP is pretty normal uh, or not very elevated to begin with, so uh, it may be less helpful in, in that context. Uh, in the past, you know, um, I've used ESR um, on the outpatient side sometimes to help gauge, you know, duration of, of therapy and, and adequacy of response. But I think there's a lot less data uh, for that than with CRP. And, and we know ESR is going to take longer to come down than, than CRP. Um, in terms of duration of, and sorry, and then the other thing, you know, I think, uh, you know, to keep in mind is, you know, do you have an oral option and is the patient able to take oral therapy? So if, if the patient's able to tolerate oral therapy and you have a good oral option, um, then by all means, I think switching the, the patient's appropriate for something like Kingella, you should have a lot of uh, oral options. Again, uh, cephalexin or amoxicillin, clavulani uh, may be good options, or even if it, it's not a beta-lactamase, you may be even be able to get away with amoxicillin. Um, you know, and with staph aureus, similarly, Clindamycin is a popular empiric choice if, if there's concerns about MRSA because we know if the kid improves that, um, and even if you don't get uh, a positive culture, you're not able to get a sample. If they improve, you know, they've, it suggests that they've responded to therapy and you can safely transition them to oral clindamycin. Um, and as far as, you know, duration, I think in general, we've, we've sort of said four weeks is pretty typical for osteomyelitis. Um, the new guidelines that have come out suggest that, you know, three to four weeks should sort of be the starting point uh, or the minimum duration of therapy. And that probably longer durations for uncomplicated osteomyelitis really aren't necessary and aren't associated with uh, improved outcomes. Again, she's a little bit, uh, an, this is a little bit of an unusual case because um, we're not going to have, you know, our typical inflammatory markers to maybe follow as closely. We'd assume that they're probably going to be normalized pretty quickly. But in general, you know, for an acute hematogenous long bone osteomyelitis, we would typically follow the CRP maybe on a, a weekly basis or so uh, to see that that is eventually normalized before uh, typically stopping therapy. And again, you know, you want to see consistently that the patient is improving clinically. Um, so I, I think, you know, starting with four weeks is a reasonable place to start and then sort of reassessing, you know, she's someone who uh, just given the location of her osteomyelitis may require, you know, some follow-up imaging to make sure things are, are improved just because it's, it's close to a lot of other critical structures. So you do want to make sure that that infection has been adequately treated. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to consider the pathogen too. So, you know, for most uh, hematogenous osteo, we're worried about MSSA. Three to four weeks of therapy may be totally reasonable for something like uh, MRSA that may be more virulent potentially, or uh, some of these USA 300 strains of Staph aureus. 
you may be inclined to treat on the longer end of that course or even go potentially beyond four weeks if they have other uh, complicating factors. Again, King Gala tends to be a little bit less virulent, so you know the three to four week range may be totally reasonable for that bug. Yeah. Um, so we kind of reached the end of this case, but I, I like to end by asking if there's anything else that we missed or, or that you think would be important to share, uh, you know, about the case. I know we touched on a lot about osteomyelitis as well as King Ella, but any thoughts? Um, no, I, I think, you know, um, having an open mind about the uh, the diagnosis uh, initially and you know pursuing imaging was ultimately was really um, helpful in this case and and really you know making sure that there was a tissue uh, sample to to evaluate was really important i think without that this case would have been much more challenging and you could have gotten stuck potentially on a wrong therapy for a while and you know maybe she would have tolerated the the clindamycin okay, but I think long-term, you know, could she have had other complications? Would she have started to develop more of an inflammatory process? Uh, maybe. So I think, you know, actually the, the diagnosis was um, uh, came about pretty quickly because of the imaging and because of uh, aggressively pursuing a tissue diagnosis. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for being on the show. I had a great time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Wow, y'all, we have made it to 10 episodes of Febrile. I just want to express how grateful I am to any new and returning listeners. I will keep you up to date on the release of the PIDS podcast and guidelines on pediatric osteomyelitis, which should be out soon. I hope that this Febrile episode will serve as a nice compliment to those. Um, Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, for post-episode consult notes with key points and links to references. Please feel free to connect and follow us on Twitter or Instagram so you do not miss any of the graphics that accompany the podcast. And if you have topics you're interested in or want to collaborate on a future episode, just send me a message or an email. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.